Before we get started with the show, we wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, so less than a cup of coffee, you can help us pay our producers and our social media editor and basically keep the podcast going. If you contribute to Always Take Notes on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, notably a sheaf of successful magazine pitches from myself and Rachel and former co-hosts and friends of the show, uh, which is really useful for any aspiring writer. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we spoke to journalist and provocateur Toby Young. We spoke to Toby about his short-lived career at The Times, his ill-fated spell at Vanity Fair, and his long-standing career as a contrarian and pundit. It's a fascinating episode. We hope you enjoy it. So, Toby, uh, great to have you on Always Take Notes. Thanks for finding the time. We're doing this uh, via video call due to the, the lockdown. We were wondering if we could start with your, your initial desire to become a journalist um, and some of your, your early experiences in the 1990s at the, the Modern Review and so forth. What was the initial attraction to, to becoming a journalist from your side? Well, I remember um, being at my mother's book party. So my mother wrote a couple of novels and um, when I was a teenager, I think she had the party for her second novel. Um, and there were various journalists there. She knew various journalists and she also worked as a journalist herself. And um, I remember one of the journalists there telling me, um, you know, that it was better than working for a living. And, um, and it occurred, I sort of had this vision, I think, of um, being able to sort of stand on a soapbox, um, as my mother had just done, and speak and have people listen. And, you know, as a precocious, attention-seeking teenager, uh, that was very attractive in its own right. But the idea of getting paid for doing that seemed very appealing. Um, and I liked the company of journalists and I liked the fact that they seemed slightly unrespectable and had a kind of, um, you know, honor amongst thieves, um, spirit. Um, and there was a kind of, you know, ne'er do wells all hanging out together, kind of throwing rocks, throwing stones at the windows of more respectable people. All that very much appealed to me as a teenager. So I sort of decided, I think, uh, around then when I was 14, 15, that uh, if possible, I'd like to be a journalist. And were there any forays into student journalism? Yes. Um, I started uh, a magazine at the sixth form uh, of William Ellis, um, which was, I was in the last grammar school year. It's now a comprehensive in North London. Um, there was only one issue uh, and it was a rival to the, much more respectable official sixth form magazine. Um, and then when I went to Oxford, um, various magazines I discovered were named after rivers. So Isis, Charwell, etc., uh, tributary. Um, and so I thought bigger river, bigger magazine. So I started a magazine called the Danube, but my brilliant wheeze was to change the name of each issue. So each issue would be named after another river. Um, and the Danube was about Britain's relationship with Central Europe. And the next one was called the Hudson. And that was about Britain's relationship with America. And it, it never went beyond <laughs> issue two. Um, and, uh, and I ended up editing Tributary, which was the um, uh, Oxford equivalent of Private Eye. Um, and it actually had a, a, the, 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 the people who passed it on to me more or less, were Andrew Sullivan and Neil Ferguson, um, who were in, they were a year or two above me. And after I'd edited Tributary, I then passed it on to um, Boris Johnson and Darius Guppy, who jointly edited it. Um, uh, so it had a fairly distinguished lineage. I'm not sure if it still exists. And what was your uh, immediate postgraduate path into, into journalism? How did you go about making your way at that time? I started um, writing for the National Press when I was still a student. Um, so 
uh, I wrote a piece for um, New Society, a magazine that no longer exists. It became part of um, the New Statesman. Um, uh, that was in 1985, I think. And, um, and it was a piece about youth culture. And as a consequence of that, I was contacted by an editor at The Observer. And I ended up um, signing a contract with The Observer to write sort of, I don't know, 15 features a year while I was still a student. Um, and then when I left, I got a job as a news trainee at The Times. <clears throat> and I lasted at The Times for six months. Um, the reason I didn't last longer than that is because uh, every morning when I came into work, I would try and log on to the internal computer system as the editor-in-chief. The editor-in-chief was this um, uh, plain-spoken Scotsman called Charles Wilson. And, um, and I tried different passwords, just, just, you know, almost as a way of doodling before setting down, getting down to work each morning. And eventually, after six months, I hit the right one, which was top man. And um, when you sent a message to someone from the internal computer within the internal computer system, the person who the message was from would come up underneath in big bold letters. So I immediately sent a message to my boss, who was this rather languid, supercilious, um, uh, middle-aged man with long flowing locks who drove an open-top MG. And um, my message said, "Move your effing car! It's in my space." you know, signed the editor. And he kind of leapt up as if struck with a cattle prod and ran into the car park and moved his car. And, um, and I thought, I can have some fun here. And I sort of wreaked havoc, um, masquerading as the editor for about a week. Uh, and then the sort of IT police, the internal IT police tracked down the miscreant. And I was summoned to the managing editor's office. And I thought, well, I'll get a slap on the wrist, but secretly you'll be quite impressed because um, after all, being able to kind of guess passwords and hack computer systems is an essential skill if you want to be a journalist, you know, these days. Um, instead, I was greeted by a security guard and handed the contents of my office drawer in a kind of clear plastic bag and escorted from the premises. So that was the end of my career as a news trainee at the Times. And what, what was the looking back you know, what was the kind of motivation to do that, to, to you know, to, to engage in this thing, which, you know, which was, was quite elaborate and pretty thought through, but, you know, did terminate your employment there. What do you think was driving you to do that? I think I've always had um, a problem with authority. Um, I can't, uh, uh, I find it very difficult to um, toe the line, um, to behave well um, to obey the rules. Um, I've always had a kind of strong, rebellious, anti-authoritarian streak, and it has quite often got me into trouble. Um, curiously, I, I suppose I, I, I don't think ahead of time that it's likely to get me into as much trouble as it generally does. And um, it's taken a long time for, uh, to, to learn that lesson. Um, but I, th I, think it, I think it must have something to do with that. When you were um, at the Times, what were the sort of things that you were doing other than hacking the editor-in-chief's uh, account? Well, I think the first thing I did when I, I think it could even have been the first day I got there, um, I was told to, I think Peterborough had been um, uh, anointed in some poll as the most normal town in Britain. So I was, I was dispatched at sort of 10am to go to Peterborough, um, interview some normal residents, find out a bit about the town and file a colour piece by 3.30pm that day. Um, so off I went to Peterborough on the train and sort of didn't know how to do this, but it was very much being plunged in at the deep end. Um, I did a few, I worked in, at one point I was, my job was interviewing portfolio winners. Portfolio was the Times' upmarket version of bingo. And um, I remember one of the things we had to put in the paper each day when we interviewed the previous day's portfolio winner, we had to put a brief description of the winner, which included their age. And quite often I would find myself ringing up the 
is um, women in late middle age and um, working up to asking them how old they were, which they were very reluctant to disclose. Um, uh, it was, you know, it was a sort of variety of things. Um, y- you would try it out, and you know, y- 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 you spent some time in different departments. The idea was to kind of uh, uh, get get a broad experience of what it was like working for a national newspaper. I remember not being terribly impressed with the kind of day to day operation of the Times. Most of the journalists were, um, you know, fairly subdued. Um, and uh, seemed a bit bored. Um, but when there was a national disaster, I can't remember exactly what happened. There was some rail accident or something. Um, suddenly, the entire place came to life uh, in a way which was uh, amazing to behold. Everyone was suddenly kind of at the top of their game, really excited, kind of running on adrenaline, doing amazing work to kind of get as much information about the disaster in the following day's paper. And that gave me a glimpse of uh, the excitement of of journalism, which is, you know, particularly if you're working for a daily newspaper or a news organisation, the day-to-day life can be pretty quotidian and dull. Um, But sometimes when there's a big breaking story, it just becomes incredibly exciting and dramatic and um uh, and it's kind of uh, uh that, that 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 kind of uh, even though my my experience at the times wasn't generally good seeing the newsroom really spring to life that day did did make me think that it was a profession i wanted to be in and when with other people we of, of kind of similar age to yourself we've asked them you know looking back um, you know, on journalism at, at that period, it's it's easy, you know, given what's happened with the inroads the internet has made into the business model and everything like that, to to see it through rose-tinted spectacles. What this was sort of late nineteen eighties, I suppose. But what, in retrospect, was your view of what was good about that period of journalism, and what maybe in retrospect was was less good? It was quite a good period to be a journalist. It was very different um, to today. A good, a good time to be starting out because um, there was an explosion of um, entrepreneurial activity in the print journalism space, um, uh, partly as a result of um, Rupert Murdoch's uh, defiance of the print unions and um, whopping. Um, uh, and I remember being asked um, when I first applied for a job as a news trainee at the Times uh, by the editor uh, by the deputy editor at the time, um, whether I would have any qualms about crossing a picket line, because at that time, in when I started there in '86, uh, there was um, you had to literally cross a picket line in order to enter um, News International's whopping plant. Um, uh, but because of because of that, um, uh, it became much cheaper to um, print newspapers and as a consequence a number of newspapers were started <clears throat> so there was eddie shah's today um there was a new evening paper um a rival to the evening standard um the independent um uh, i can't remember when that started i think it was just before i started at the times um but you know it was an explosion um of newsprint um, and seemed like a kind of really great time to be starting out as a journalist. It seemed like there were going to be all these great opportunities. And I remember being offered different jobs. I was offered a job on the new London Evening Paper, um, but ended up taking the job at the Times. Um, but, you know, very different to today. And so what did you do after you were um, sacked from the Times? Uh, I freelanced for about six months. Um, uh, mainly working for the Mail on Sunday's U magazine. Um, and and then I uh, applied for a Fulbright scholarship to um, go to Harvard and uh, went to Harvard um, for a year between 87 and 88. And um, that convinced me that I should pursue an academic career. Um, uh, and i quite convinced by anyway. I decided to see if I could pursue an academic career. And um, so I applied to do a PhD at Cambridge. And so when I came back from Harvard, I went to Trinity College, Cambridge, and embarked on a 
PhD in philosophy. And I did that for two years and um, decided that actually a life in the ivory tower um, wasn't something I was cut out for. And so went back to journalism in sort of around 89, 90. And what was, could you tell us about the, the modern review then? What, how did that come about and what, uh, what direction did that take your career? So um, I had uh, got to know Julie Birchall um, when I was still a student because um, the person who lived uh, next door to me but one in Islington was Cosmo Landisman. And round about 84, I think, um, Julie left her first husband, Tony Parsons, and moved in with Cosmo, so literally became the girl next door. And she at that time had um, a uh, burgeoning career in journalism um, and encouraged me to become a journalist as well. Um, and at one stage, I remember she was offered a column by Time Out and didn't think she'd have time to write it, a weekly column. And I said, no, no, take it and I'll write the column for you and you can just present it as written by you and we can split the money. And we did that for a bit. And actually in one of her greatest hits collections, some of my pieces, which had appeared under her byline in Time Out, um, appeared under her name. Um, some of the better ones, I have to say. Um, and uh, we kind of fantasized, me, Julie and Cosmo, about starting our own magazine. Um, and we were sort of in love with the kind of romance of the world of little magazines, which was um, a thing then, not really a thing anymore. I mean, I guess the equivalent is online magazines now. Um, but uh, uh, and we, we talked about it a lot. And um, when I left Cambridge, um, I I. I talked to them more seriously about it and said, look, why don't we try and do it? Why don't we actually set up a magazine? Um, and uh, we were all fascinated by popular culture and we all um, uh, disliked the way in which mass culture was covered in the broadsheets and uh, by a lot of the more respectable broadcasters, uh, which was a sort of slightly sneering, contemptuous way. Um, not exclusively, but for the most part. Um, and genre fiction was looked down upon. Action films were generally kind of viewed with disdain. Um, no one took mass culture as seriously as our generation uh, seemed to at that time. Uh, and it seemed like there was, you know, it, the time was ripe for a different approach to um, critically evaluating popular culture, uh, doing it in a, in a much more serious minded way. Uh, and so that was the idea for the modern review. We called it um, low culture for highbrows. And um, the format was the same as the TLS, the London Review of Books. And the idea was that we wanted to produce pieces of a similar intellectual caliber by intellectuals and academics. Um, but instead of being about, you know, the latest biography of um, Anthony Trollope, um, it would be about, you know, Madonna and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, I think Julie described it as smash hits edited by F.R. Levis. And um, I, we, 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 I created a dummy um, and, uh, uh, and, on the basis of that kind of managed to raise a bit of money from backers and persuade some advertisers to come in. And we launched the first issue, I think in September of 1991. And initially it was a quarterly, um, but it quite quickly became a bi-monthly and at its peak, um, after a couple of years, uh, it was doing very well and um, selling about 25,000 copies, not just in the UK, but, internationally particularly in the US um, and this was in the pre-internet era so these were all you know either subscriptions or newsstand sales um, and it was all produced out of my bedsit in Shepherd's Bush and I had fantasies you know as I was laying it out on the kind of kitchen table that um, this was the beginning of a media empire you know Jan Wenner the um, uh, creator of Rolling Stone started it in his kitchen and laid it out on his kitchen table and then you know, transformed it into a multi-million pound um, media empire and ended up, I think, uh, having his own private jet at one stage. So I had fantasies that, uh, you know, of parlaying 
these early inauspicious beginnings into a kind of global media brand. But um, I ended up falling out with Julie in uh, 1995 when she left Cosmo and uh, ran off with um, uh, Charlotte Raven, who was then an associate editor on the magazine and wanted to make, wanted to depose me and make Charlotte the editor. So in secret, I produced a, a final issue of the Modern Review and uh, published it, announcing that uh, I had shut it down because I'd fallen out with Julie. Um, and uh, eventually it was resurrected under Charlotte, but um, didn't last very long. And from there, um, how did you come to work at Vanity Fair? So when the Modern Review went belly up in 95, I had already... Uh, done a couple of pieces for Vanity Fair. I met Graydon Carter, then the editor-in-chief, at a Sunday Times magazine lunch hosted by Andrew Neil, um, I think in 93. And um, I remember pitching him this idea at this lunch of um, a sort of photo story, uh, which would be Britain's most celebrated authors in their favourite pubs, you know, headshots of people like Martin Amis and Ian McEwan in their in their favourite boozers nursing pints. And, um, and Graydon looked at me and he said, what are you fucking kidding? It would look like a dental catalogue. And uh, that was his sort of general kind of demeanour. He was uh, full of kind of uh, cynical, wisecracking New York humour. Anyway, we got on very well and, um, and he commissioned me to do a couple of things. And then when the Modern Review went belly up in 95, he said, why don't you come out to New York, uh, spend some time at Vanity Fair. I think his idea was that I would start a similar magazine to the Modern Review, uh, but in New York. Um, I think he saw in me a fellow magazine entrepreneur. Um, he himself, with Kurt Anderson. Had with started, Spy, right, yeah. Had started with Spy, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, in the mid-80s, and that had been a big success. Um, and uh, I think he hoped that I would... Um, start a, a similar magazine in New York and that he would be my mentor. Um, and so off I went to New York and um, initially I think the idea was I'd work for Vanity Fair for a month and that became three months and then six months and ended up working there for two and a half years, I think. Um, but it was so comfortable being at Vanity Fair. It was so, um, it was like, I, I think was, we used to describe it as a velvet coffin. Um, you know, you didn't, you didn't actually do very much but you had this kind of extraordinary expense account you had kind of uh, limos to take you wherever you wanted to go um because you worked for vanity fair which at that time was you know this fantastically glamorous publication and at those in those days you know glossy magazines were kind of somewhere near the top of the kind of uh, media hierarchy so you had the kind of keys to the city in your hand and um you know i had a high old time for two and a half years kind of uh, tearing around new york as a single man um with a decent expense account and a decent salary without ever producing much for the magazine and without sort of uh, ever really thinking about starting another magazine and striking out on my own it was just far too comfortable being at vanity fair but you know i I, I messed up in dozens of different ways and ended up um, falling out with Graydon. And um, eventually I wrote a book about that experience called uh, How to Lose Friends and Alienate People. And at what stage was Graydon at when you were there in his journey from, as you say, kind of outsider with Spy Magazine throwing stones at the establishment to very much kind of eminence grease of the New York media establishment? Where was he on that journey? At that time, yeah, he was. He, he, I think he still had um, a mischievous streak. Um, when I first uh, worked, started working for him in New York, um, but you could very much tell that uh, he was uh, on a journey, um, and uh, uh, from you know poacher to gamekeeper, um, and uh, he, as he became kind of uh, uh, more and more in love with the American establishment, um, particularly Hollywood. Um, I think is uh, in part because of the extraordinary leverage um, given to him by the Vanity Fair Oscar party, which um, uh, everyone in Hollywood wanted to go to. Um, and I think he hoped to parlay that into a producing career. And he did produce a couple of things, including um, 
the kid stays in the picture. Um, and uh, uh, I think he hoped to kind of um, open up various restaurants as well um, and become a kind of uh, player in the um, world that he had hitherto only chronicled as a magazine editor. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that worked out pretty well for him. And he had a very successful career as um, the editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. I think he retired a couple of years ago. Um, but uh, Vanity Fair gradually became less and less cheeky and mischievous and threw fewer and fewer stones uh, at the windows of the establishment pangendrums and um, eventually um, became uh, the kind of in-house magazine of the kind of uh, plutocratic elite. Um, one, one, one change that hadn't happened when I was still at Vanity Fair was that Graydon hadn't discovered politics. I think he discovered, he discovered kind of mainstream liberal politics around about 98, 99. And uh, I remember this being explained to me by one of his um, contacts in Hollywood, who was kind of opening doors for him on the West Coast, um, that Graydon had realized that at kind of uh, West Coast dinner parties with the kind of Hollywood elite, um, you know, he, he was fed up being asked to relate gossip about the latest Vanity Fair cover story or about which celebrity was shagging which celebrity. Um, and uh, uh, it was as though, you know, he'd been consigned to, you know, the um, uh, socialite kind of division uh, when he wanted to be in the kind of players division. So by kind of uh, discovering politics, he then had something else to talk about at these dinner parties, which kind of enhanced his credibility and made him a more serious player. Um, but I, I never, and he, 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 he'd been a long-standing critic of Trump's, um, uh, but uh, it started out in a kind of uh, amusing kind of piss take way talking about him being a short-fingered vulgarian and whatnot and kind of uh, eventually kind of morphed into you know a fairly standard knee-jerk liberal critique of uh, Trump's presidency um, I was never persuaded by his his politics um, uh, but uh, you know um, and, and it never really it never really worked out in terms of securing him a Hollywood career either but and I, I don't quite know where he is now politically <laughs> Um, you mentioned not writing very much when you're at Vanity Fair. Your uh, Wikipedia page says you wrote 3,000 words and earned $85,000. Is that fair? And what did you write about? What did you spend those 3,000 words on? Yeah, I, I actually, um, for the first time um, in about a year, looked at my Wikipedia page a couple of days ago and <laughs> saw the line you've just quoted. And it's really annoying because the, the, the s some... Um, someone on Wikipedia has sliced off the punchline from that line, um, which is, which was that if you divide the um, amount I got paid by the number of words I wrote, um, I'm the highest paid writer that's ever been employed by Vanity Fair on a dollar per word basis. But typically, typically, um, uh, Wikipedia has chopped off the punchline and just left the setup for the gag. Um, I don't think that's actually true. I'm sure there are much better paid people than me who've been employed by Vanity Fair, such as Dominic Dunn, who really was paid a, a king's ransom to cover the um, OJ trial. Um, I, 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 what did I do for Vanity Fair? I think um, I, di I did a piece when I first arrived in 85, um, comparing the internet to CB radio. <laughs> not, not, surely not, not, not 95, not 85. Sorry, no, 95, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, uh, not one of my most prescient pieces. Um, and, uh, I, I, I wrote a couple of, there, there was a, there was, um, uh, in one of the sections in Vanity Fair towards the front of the book, um, we wrote about kind of, um, up and coming starlets and internally in the office, this was known as bimbos on the horizon. And I did a couple of bimbos on the horizon pieces. Um, but yeah, I think the grand total of, of, of my wordage was around 3,000. Um, so not, not impressive. I think Graydon, Graydon got it into his head that um, as a British person, um, I wasn't a diligent reporter. And that, that um, uh, I also, I wrote this piece about, um, I wrote this piece uh, before I started 
working there full time about um, Salman Rushdie and about the life he was living um, uh, under police protection. This was during the kind of, this was after the fatwa had been issued shortly afterwards. And I wrote some funny stories, you know, relayed some funny gossipy stories about dinner parties. And I think there was one story about Zoe Heller um, sleeping with, um, one of uh, Salman Rushdie's close protection officers at some dinner party that went on all night. Um, and uh, and it was a slightly kind of piss-taking piece about the kind of uh, 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 the clash between, you know, literary London and the um, Metropolitan Police, the close protection officers who were, who were, who were guarding Rushdie. Um, and Hitchens, who was a great friend of Rushdie's, um, and a great champion of Rushdie's, um, uh, took real exception to this piece and constantly kind of needled Graydon about it and, and complained that I'd got all sorts of facts wrong and sort of waged a campaign to get the fact-checking department to kind of print a correction. And I think partly because of that, um, Hitch did succeed in, in destroying my credibility uh, in Graydon's eyes as a, as a reporter. So it became very difficult to persuade Graydon after that to commission me to do anything, even though actually I, I always disputed um, Hitch's uh, claims and, um, you know, produced uh, various sources to, to show that actually the stories I re relayed in this piece were, were accurate. And could you talk us then, you know, in, in kind of brief about, you know, post-America to what you're doing today? How has, has your... How is that journey in terms of the, the type of work you're doing and, and things like that? And then, you know, bringing in these other projects with the, um, the, the schools and also the, the Free Speech Union. How has, how has, what's been the kind of thread running through those things, do you think? Well, after I um, returned to London in 2000, um, I wrote up an account of my disastrous career as a Vanity Fair editor. Um, and about my misadventures in New York called How to Lose Friends and Alienate People. Um, and uh, it was initially rejected by a couple of dozen publishers. Um, eventually found one willing to publish it and it became an unlikely bestseller in the UK and then a bestseller internationally. Graydon initially um, was quite sympathetic to the book and offered to throw a book party for me in New York. Um, but after it became much more successful than he'd anticipated, and he kept being asked about it at parties um, because it contained a, you know, a, a pretty vivid portrait of him, um, he then soured on it and described it as an unauthorised biography. Um, and uh, so I eventually completely fell out with him over the book. Um, at, in uh, after it, after it became a bestseller, um, I then sold the movie rights, and um, it was eventually turned into a film, which I think was released in two thousand and eight, starring Simon Pegg as me. Um, the film was okay; it wasn't as good as the book. Um, I realised in retrospect that uh, I had gone for the money um, and uh, sold it to a producer who persuaded me that. Um, it could be a big commercial success uh, and he was able to raise the money to, you know, give it a shot at big commercial success. And it was going to be this big international romantic comedy. Um, uh, and, you know, um, I had the dollar signs dancing in my eyes and, um, and also he was, you know, it was a guy called Stephen Woolley and his wife, Elizabeth Carlson, and they were, they, they were very nice. And, um, and actually my, I didn't have a bad experience with them at all. We had a great experience. Um, but I think in retrospect, it was a mistake to try and turn it into a big commercial success. We should have uh, actually tried to do it in a much smaller way um, and kept faith with the spirit of the book. In the end, um, in, in the book, even though I'm the sort of anti-hero, uh, it, it's a very kind of waspish, acidic, caustic picture of New York in the uh, 90s um, and uh, ultimately you end up kind of sympathizing with the kind of anti-hero at least I hope you do and uh, and and sort of uh, uh, sharing his disdain and contempt for um, this kind of plutocratic you know dystopia um, uh, but the the, it, it, the the film the tone of the film is very different um you know you, you end up kind of uh, you end up, you're supposed to sympathize with uh, the kind of plutocrats and um and think that the central character is essentially a bit of an idiot who's eventually redeemed when he uh, through the love of a good woman and um you know comes around to 
the values that he's initially rejected. So I would I thought a much more kind of um, actually we should instead of trying to tone down the anti-Americanism of the book um, to turn it into a commercial success, we should have uh, not worried about it being a commercial success and and ratcheted up the volume on its kind of uh, anti-American kind of cynical caustic um tone um and i think ultimately that would have been a much better uh film possibly even a more commercially successful film um anyway so that was the book um in uh 89 no sorry in in sorry in um in uh 2009 i co-authored and co-produced a drama doc for channel four called when boris met dave um about the kind of rivalry between dave cameron and boris johnson uh which was fun shown on channel four um uh, and then in i i got married the reason i came back from new york is in part because i fell in love and got engaged and ended up with four kids all born pretty closely together um and uh so in um 2000 around 2009 um started to worry about where they'd all go to school um the local state schools uh the primaries were pretty good where i live the secondaries not so good there were some good ones but or there are some good ones but you had to be either cme or catholic or lib virtually in the school to get into them. So anyway, I was starting to worry about where we'd send the kids to school. And um, at that time, um, Michael Gobe was the shadow education secretary and was talking about um, free schools and making it possible for charities and groups of parents to set up schools. Um, and uh, so I wrote a piece in the Observer in August 2009 saying that I wanted to start one of uh, England's first free schools. And uh, I said I wanted to be a comprehensive grammar school with uh, a comprehensive intake, but grammar school standards, a gromp. Um, and uh, in that piece at the end, I included an email address and said, you know, if you're interested in helping out, contact me and let's see if we can do this. And um, about 150 people contacted me. Um, I invited them all to a meeting at my house, um, about 50 people crowded into my sitting room. And out of that group, a steering committee of about 12 people emerged, most of whom I'd never met before, just they contacted me out of the blue um, after I'd written this piece. Uh, but there were mainly local parents also worried about whether they we're going to send their kids to school. Um, and uh, we embarked on this kind of uh, odyssey to try and open a school and, you know, we had different skills, but uh, none of us had done anything like this before. And um, it was a very steep learning curve for me um, and uh, but quite an exciting one too. Um, and uh, we became the first group to sign uh, a funding agreement with uh, Michael Gove um, uh, and uh, one of the first to open a free school in uh, two years later in uh, I was wondering with these you know you have on the one hand this this sort of school project you're doing here and on the other your kind of business as a as a columnist and writing provocative stuff there and I wondered whether you know you've, you've written about your dad and how he had this you know he was a sort of huge coined the word meritocracy had this huge role as a sort of public intellectual and things like that do you think that these kind of to, as you said, mentioned earlier, your your real distrust of authority, and but then also these this kind of doing this sort of educational entrepreneurship. Do you feel your father's legacy was kind of a factor in those those two things? Yeah, I think that um, my father was um, uh, had a lifelong interest in education, um, uh, but I do think that. Um, uh, my father was um, a positive role model in that um, he started over the course of his life about 50 institutions, um, some of which were more successful than others. Uh, but one of the most successful that he was involved in starting was the Open University, um, which in spite of recent problems, I think is still the single largest higher education institution in Europe. Um, and has, I think, at any one time over a quarter of a million students. Um, and I did think when um, uh, sitting down and um, weighing up whether to uh, try and set up a free school, you know, on the one hand, this seemed like an awful lot to take on. 
um, you know, who was I to think that I could set up a school? This was clearly a kind of fantastically complicated project involving, um, uh, you know, battles on a range of different fronts and skill sets that uh, I didn't have. And I hadn't had any experience of leading a project on that scale, you know, a sort of multi-million pound uh, a project like that before. Um, but I guess the fact that my father had started all these institutions, and in particular, a university, made me think, well, you know, how hard can it be? Um, and uh, I, I guess that's probably... Um, uh, you have to when you when you when you embark on something like that um you know you have to have a kind of confidence um and uh i probably got that from my dad too um even though he wasn't um uh socially a very confident man um and could be quite awkward and shy um and uh you know the cocktail party certainly wasn't um his milieu, um, he had a kind of core, uh, an inner core of steely self-confidence. He believed in his own ability to create organizations um, uh, and believed that they'd be successful um, and uh, had a number of skills which enabled him to uh, do that, um, mainly kind of stamina, persistence, bloody-mindedness, certain amount of charm um and i guess one of the things i one of the things um uh, that enabled my father to um start all the institutions he did is that if you have this kind of inner core of certainty you know bordering on fanaticism um uh others will follow you um if you if you don't admit you you, know, you, you can be i think part of being a good leader um, is um, you listen to people up to a point, you take their criticisms on board, you adjust course if necessary in response to their criticisms. But at some basic level, you don't doubt yourself. You have this kind of fanatical core of self-belief. Um, and if you have that, people will follow you. And uh, my father had that, and I think I have that too. And that's partly why I was able to successfully carry out this incredibly complicated, ambitious project. Is that what's also got you into trouble, that, that self-belief that people will follow you if, you if you put yourself out there? Yeah, it does get you into trouble too. Um, you know, um, it, can, it can come off as um, what the kind of... Uh, Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, people um, people think sometimes you, you come off like a kind of uh, delusional um, contestant on The Apprentice, kind of believing you can kind of start a business overnight and make it successful. Um, and certainly not everything I've tried my hand at um, has been a success. Uh, one thing I left out in the in the brief kind of canter through my career history is in 2004, there were various uh, sex scandals that beset the spectator. Um, so um, uh, Rod Little um, uh, left his then wife on their honeymoon um, and returned to London to run off with the spectator's receptionist. Um, uh, Boris, uh, who was then the editor, turned out was having an affair with the deputy editor, Petronella Wyatt, even though he initially dismissed this rumour as an inverted pyramid of piffle. Um, and uh, Kimberly Fortier, then the publisher of the magazine, turned out she was having an affair with the blind Home Secretary, David Blunkett. Um, and the um, I was sharing the theatre critic beat at the time with a guy called called Lloyd Evans, um, and he still does it, actually. Um, and we decided that somebody was bound to write um, a sex farce set in the spectator's offices, and it would become this kind of massive West End hit, and we'd kick ourselves for not doing it. So we decided to have a crack at it ourselves. And we wrote a, a sex farce called Who's the Daddy? Um, and it 
was put on um, above this, it was put on at the back of this pub in Islington um, called the King's Head, um, not far from where I lived uh, and not far from where Boris lived. And um, uh, it was a huge success insofar as, you know, a pub show can be a success. It sold out almost overnight. Um, it got four-star reviews in most of the broadsheets. Um, and we had three offers to take it into the West End. But um, Boris, who'd been very good, he, up until this point, he'd been extremely good about the whole thing. He'd taken it on the chin. Remember on opening night, he sent uh, Lloyd and I a postcard, which said, um, I always knew my life would be turned into a farce, and I'm just glad it's been entrusted to two such distinguished men of letters. And, you know, if he could have used a typeface called irony, he would have done. Um, but that was the extent of his... Uh, um, criticism of us. Um, he, he'd really been very sporting about the whole thing, hadn't fired us, hadn't tried to dissuade us from putting it on, um, even though, you know, it was uh, ripping the piss out of him in virtually every scene. I remember in the opening scene, there was a kind of huge portrait of Margaret Thatcher um, behind did, did the he, did, did he, desk. Did he stop it going to the West End then? Or, but or... He, he did he did balk at, uh, at uh, the West End transfer, yeah. And he, he didn't threaten me or Lloyd with the sack, but he just he just tried to appeal to our better nature and essentially said that, you know, you've achieved what you wanted to achieve. You've established your bona fides as playwrights. You can now get another play put on. Um, why take this one into the West End? Um, you'll only be doing it to, you know, line your pockets and you'll be doing that at my expense. I've been very good about this until now. We've been friends for... 20, 25 years, you know, doesn't that mean anything, et cetera, et cetera. And in the end, we, we decided not to take it into the West End. Could we um, talk then? Just but sorry, I was just, I was just, the, 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 I just lost my train of thought. I was going to say that we then did, we then did go on to um, write a second play called A Right Royal Farce, which wasn't nearly as good as um, Who's the Daddy? Um, and um, through sheer bloody-minded persistence, I managed to get that play produced at the King's Head, and that was an absolute disaster. Uh, any any reputation enhancement that had taken place as a result of Who's the Daddy was negated, and then some, by the <laughs> appalling reception received by um, uh, a right royal fast. So um, being persistent and bloody minded isn't always a kind of killer strategy. And talking on kind of on that note, this idea of, you know, coming back to your column writing, people sometimes talk today about how there's a kind of business of, of outrage of people who, you know, there's a market in provocative content, it leads to clicks and advertising and stuff like that. And would you feel that you're operating within that? Or do you feel you're outside that? And could you discuss some of your work on free speech as well on, on those points too? Yeah, I think um, I've always enjoyed um, uh, taking up difficult positions um, uh, and trying to defend them. Um, that's sort of intellectually more interesting generally than um, trying to defend the conventional wisdom. Um, uh, I don't think, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I don't think, that, I mean, I think that, um, the kind of journalism I used to do um, before I got involved in education and free schools um, was more of that nature. Um, I, I, I guess sort of, uh, I liked kind of, you know, muckraking, iconoclastic um, journalism and uh, writing provocative opinion pieces um, uh, but I became, I think, more serious, um, as a result of my, um, involvement in setting up schools, ended up co-founding four of them. Um, that kind of, uh, made me politically more serious until then. Um, I'd, um, been fairly cynical about, um, politicians generally and not particularly sympathetic to any government. Um, but, uh, because the free schools policy was a conservative policy um, and because um, the defense of the school was sort of, uh, and, and the welfare of the school and the future of the school was kind of intimately bound up with the future of the conservative government that had made it possible, that turned me into a conservative loyalist. And um, 
uh, I wouldn't say I'm uh, slavishly loyal. For instance, I've just written something very critical of the current government's um, approach to managing the coronavirus crisis. Um, but uh, generally, uh, uh, ever since 2010 or so, I'd say, I've been um, uh, a defender of the Conservative Party and of successive Conservative Prime Ministers. How long will you spend on a column, typically? And is there a kind of rigorous fact-check system in place at The Spectator? Uh, well, I remember at one stage, um, me and Matthew Norman um, were the most prolific columnists um, in Britain. Someone wrote a piece about it in the Evening Standard. I think we each had five columns per week. Um, and um, when you've got, when you've got, when you're doing, you know, a column a day, um, then you get into the habit of writing them fairly quickly. Um, I think in the past that may have been harder because, as you say, uh, how would you go about um, fact-checking um, a column that you, you, know, you have to produce daily? Um, uh, but with the internet, that obviously becomes a lot easier. Um, uh, when I was at my kind of, at my kind of column-writing peak, I mean, I could, uh, I remember, you know, I'd be, I, I could, and sometimes I was, you know, out and about talking to people, going to see things, um, trying my hand at different kind of crazy things like working as a greeter in Asda and whatnot. Um, and so often I had to kind of write a column on the move. And I remember, I remember sort of, uh, I remember being in a radio studio once and um, uh, in between interviews, dashing off a column. Uh, in about 20 minutes. Um, but generally speaking, um, now that I'm down to, you know, one or two columns a week, um, uh, I usually spend, I don't know, about three and a half, four hours writing a column, depending on, you know, how how intellectually ambitious I'm being, how difficult the subject matter is, how little or how much I know about it, etc. You mentioned finances as being an impetus for um, the Free Schools Project. Uh, it's one of the rules of the podcast that we always ask people about money. Um, would you mind laying out in terms of specific or as vague as you like what the balance of your income is from columns, from other projects, from, I know you have a podcast, um, from books, um, from all that sort of stuff? Um, yeah, I think it changes. Um, it changes uh, from year to year. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I guess um, I was slightly, uh, well, m m the percentage of my income that uh, journalism contributes to um, uh, started to decline um, towards the, um, uh, to, I, 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 as, I, as I got more and more involved in education. Um, I, I was at one stage the um, chairman of um, the board of trustees of the multi-academy trust that the four schools I helped set up sat within, sit within. Um, and, uh, and then I became the CEO of that multi-academy trust. And then that, that, that contributed, I don't know, about 40% of my income um, when I was doing that. And then I became the director of the new schools network in around about, late 2016 I think I was acting director in late 2016 and became the full-time director in 2017 um, and that then then that that constituted I don't know about 60 percent of my income um, and so I, I was gradually moving towards um, away from journalism and towards um, um, you know uh, uh, a role in public education um, but that all came to a grinding halt at the beginning of 2018 when I was appointed to the board of the Office for Students. That wasn't a paid job, incidentally, um, uh, but um, it was, uh, you know, a, a public position. Um, and that caused a big fuss. I got cancelled, um, had to stand down from that job and ended up having to stand down from four other positions too. And we're... we're 
sorry to interrupt we're coming up against our limit and rachel's got a, a time limit rachel's got a meeting she has to get to in a few minutes but just as a final a final point could you talk about you know from that how you became involved in this campaigning on freedom of speech and i suppose the the criticism that is often raised at that is that people use um you know the uh ideas of freedom of speech to defend hate speech or, or things like that could you maybe just and we've only got a couple of minutes here but talk about you know what your organization is there and how you what your response would be to the comp you know where you draw the lines of what is permissible in in speech and in writing so just to finish the last point simon yeah. um i was just going to say that um uh, since the beginning of 2018 almost all my income has gone back to being journalism because i'm no longer involved in any public education roles um uh, yeah it, it was the experience i think of being brutally cancelled at the beginning of 2018 that prompted me in part to want to set up the free speech union um because uh when you're going through something like that um uh you know you, it's not clear who to turn to for good advice um you want kind of good reliable objective legal advice pr advice career advice you want to know, you know, should I apologize? What should I say in my apology? Will that draw a line under it? And so on and so forth. You're in kind of completely uncharted territory. No one wants to go near you because you become a pariah. Um, and uh, it's a kind of lonely and isolating position to be in. Um, and I wanted to start an organization that someone who finds themselves in that position could rely on uh, for good advice, uh, as well as psychological support. Um, and uh, that was the impetus behind the Free Speech Union, um, which launched um, uh, in February, um, now has approaching 3,000 members, um, including lots of impressive people on the Legal Advisory Council, the Media and PR Advisory Council, and the General Advisory Council. Got some great directors, Professor Nigel Bigger, Douglas Murray. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, on the hate speech question, yeah, some, some you know, inevitably there've been some brickbats thrown at the free speech union people claiming that uh, it's just to protect male pale and stale conservatives from having to suffer the consequences of spewing bile um i think that's uh, that's a very um uh, short-sighted and wrong-headed view um i think that uh, if you look at uh, the history of minority rights movements like the civil rights movement in america the gay rights movement uh, they have been completely reliant on the protection of the First Amendment. Um, without free speech, we wouldn't have seen um, uh, the rights of minorities and historically disadvantaged groups being enfranchised in the way that they have over the past 50 years. Um, so I don't see this conflict between kind of diversity on the one hand and viewpoint diversity on the other. I see them absolutely going hand in hand. And I think it's very short-sighted of um, people on the left to having having won various battles by taking advantage of um, uh, things like the First Amendment uh, to now turn their back on free speech and say, let's impose speech restrictions on our ideological enemies now that we have the upper hand. As Ira Glasser, the legendary ex-head of the American Civil Liberties Union, says um, speech restrictions are like poison gas. They may seem like a good idea when you have the enemy in your sights, but then the wind changes. Well, on that note, Toby, we should wrap this up. Um, but thank you very much for, for taking the time to speak to Always Take Notes and good luck with your various projects going forward. Thank you very much, Simon. Hello, it's us again. Simon, what did you make of uh, that interview? One of the first we did in lockdown, in fact. Yeah, it was... Uh, early in lockdown when we were still uh, getting our heads around the technology so um not ideal sound quality uh, it was also before toby young had launched his latest venture lockdown skeptics which has been getting a lot of uh, a lot of traffic recently so we didn't really grill him about that i thought it was yeah interesting we tried to get under the skin of what had been kind of motivating him in these various scrapes that he's gotten into over the years i'm not sure we entirely managed that what do you think rachel yeah, I think we, we could have done a better job at probing why he writes the things that he writes. I think we both found that it was quite difficult to interrupt him once he got going. But he did admit that he takes the path of most resistance because that's what he finds intellectually stimulating. So it's quite interesting to read his journalism in light of that. Um, but, you know, whether we 
agree with what he writes or not. He's made a successful career from being a contrarian. So um, I think he was a good guest to have on the show. Yeah, one, one always wonders how much it's a choice and how much it's a kind of unconscious compulsion almost in terms of what the reason he, he ends up doing it. Um, but anyway, an, an interesting episode. Uh, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our social media is by Katie Lee. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. And our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Patreon at Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.